Mark A. Altman, Darren Docterman, Ashley Edward Miller. Three fans who became professionals and then became... Trexperts. Inglorious Trexperts. Listen wherever you find podcasts or go to trexpertsplus.com. Virginia, there may not be a Santa Claus, but there is a Galaxy Con, and guess who's coming? <laughs> it's going to be us, the Inglorious Trexperts in As Richmond, in- Virginia. Inglorious Live Tour 2023 continues. Wow. Darren and me, Mark A. Altman, will be in Richmond at GalaxyCon on, uh, when is it, Darren? It's March 24th through 26th. March 24th to March 26th in lovely Richmond, Virginia. And there are going to be a ton of great guests. But none of that matters because we're there. We're there. We are a ton of great guests. We are indeed, and we're excited because GalaxyCon is where it's at. These guys put on great shows with great guests, a great dealer's room, and plenty of entertainment. And And more. And more. That's exactly. (laughs) The illusion of beauty and more. So uh, I'm I'm really excited, Darren. It's going to be a great chance to... um, well, I was going to say a great chance for you to meet the fans. That's right. And, uh, for me to us. meet the fans, not you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'll be eluding uh, deadly scooter accidents. Oh my but uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited because, uh, like I said, um, uh, the, the Inglorious Live Tour, or I, as I call it, my farewell tour. This is like uh, the who. You know, I'm, I'm on my farewell tour, but we know how that turned out. Uh, they've been on the same farewell tour now for 50 years. That's right. Um, <laughs> Uh, 40 that was, years, a, that was a Godfather reference. Godfather <laughs> two, actually. Yeah, he died, died of the same heart attack since. But uh, but it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be great. Um, Jody Whittaker is gonna be there. Rosario Dawson, Kevin Smith, uh, Bill Shatner, Brent Spiner. Um, no, this is Columbus. That's Columbus. <laughs> That's Columbus. You gotta I'm click talk- on the gotta click on the Richmond one. I'm talking about Richmond, Virginia. I don't think they have all of their guests up there. They don't. Uh, but Vincent is going to be there. David Tennant's going to be there. Oh, one of our favorite people. You know who's going to be there? Not only is Bill Shatter going to be there, Walt Koenig's going to be there. We love Walt. Oh, good. Yeah, it'd be good to see him. Maybe we can. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we can uh, show him another movie he hasn't seen in thirty years. <laughs> Jonathan Frakes will be there. Gates is going to be there, and nice. uh, they're just starting to announce some of these guests. But the list goes on and on, um, and it's going to be great. Oh, Mariel Hemingway from my favorite movie, Manhattan. Nice, and uh, maybe. If we can moderate a panel with her, I guess she's there for Superman Four. But we can talk about personal best in Manhattan. Oh, I think they'll be, be go over the heads of the audience. They'll be like, "What? What? What? What's going on here?" Um, Sarah <laughs> Douglas is going to be there. We haven't seen her since, oh, uh, be, since Lola's. Lola's. <laughs> yeah. Superman. That'll be great. Uh, Mark Pillow, Nuclear Man, is going to be there. Nice. Of course, the great Barry Boswick uh, yes. will be there. Star of such. Great legendary movies as Megaforce. So uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to be there. We hope you'll be there too. Uh, check out galaxycon.com for all the details. And we'll see you in Richmond, Virginia this March. Hey, 
Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And it wouldn't be a holiday special without special guest, Robert Meyer Burnett. It's Welcome great back, to be here, Rob. Joe. Dude, I can't believe that uh, it's 2024, 2023. Happy Independence Day. <laughs> Whisk by. <laughs> yes. Well, Today uh, we celebrate our Independence Day. No, it's great to be here with you, ne'er-do-wells. Uh, this, is, how, is this, this is our fifth year, man. I can't believe it. It's our fifth year. I know. It's our fifth annual holiday special. So uh, one of these days we're going to run out of, I'm going to run out of topics, but we haven't yet. And this is the first one we're recording post-holidays in the new year. So uh, happy new year to all of you, of course. Happy um, new year. I, I love I, I love to hear about your little holiday break. I, I, I spent it with COVID, so that was really entertaining. Ouch. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it was my it was my fault because we went to Universal Studios and I, I should, you know, I should have had my head exam for going ahead when I wasn't. There's a song there. It's Christmas with COVID. Yeah. Christmas with COVID. <laughs> but I did. I did catch up on some movies and some Pluto TV. And uh, I, I, I watched Amsterdam, which is a big, glorious mess. And I loved it. No, that's good. And uh, and I watched a lot of Pluto TV, a lot of Star and Trek. Star Trek is a good apparently show. TOS weekends is what it is. Oh, oh that's yeah. what you're doing. Yeah. And they got the 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 more Star Trek channel, Deep Space right? Nine, because it's more. It is. Remember, what was that song? More, more, more. How do you like it? How do you like it? How do you like it? Yeah, I don't like the title "More Star Trek Channel." Like that's the best we can come up with. <laughs> What can look, you do? Look, the other channel is Paramount Plus. You know these these aren't these aren't clever names. Yeah, Paramount says, Plus says, what? Says Darren, the man behind Trexperts Plus. That's correct. <laughs> okay, I, I, I'm just saying. All I'm saying is like I, my whole life, I dreamed that one day there would be a technology where there could be nothing but Star Trek 24 yeah, seven. And it and finally you and you're complaining. And it finally happened. And then not only was one channel, they made two channels. And they called it more Star Trek. Not even Rod Moore Star Trek, just more Star Trek. I was like, come on. It's like the starship Pluto, is landing. Pluto said, one Star Trek channel, here are two. I don't one know. One writer, <laughs> one bridge. They, we should have a contest to name the, the, it's a Deep Space Nine channel. Why would they call it more? It's like, here's some more Star Trek. That's the way they look at the franchise. You like Star Trek? Here's some more. Because it's not going to be just Deep Space Nine. It's going to be other crap. May I have some more? May I have another? More? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Rob, what did you do over the holidays, Rob? Uh, well, uh, I, I I enjoyed a lot of family time. You know, I watched a lot of movies. We kind of started a, an impromptu film festival with Elizabeth's uh, parents and aunt. And uh, we went from being there to Midnight in Paris to Casablanca to Avatar, the first Avatar. So it's it's quite an eclectic uh, mix, and it's fun. We you know I set up this new media room. The surround sound system is kicking in there, and uh, mounted the TV to the wall. And it's like a little uh, movie theater, and people just can't stop coming over. Can't stop the music. I still want to name Rob's uh, movie theater, Rob's uh, home theater. I like. I think we should have a contest. Name Rob's theater because we said. You have the Observatory, which is a very clever name for where you broadcast your broadcast studio. Yes, it's, you know, like we have the John Gill Memorial Podcasting Studio. You have, you have, uh, you have the Observatory, but well, we, you need a name for home it theater. It has to be called the Rob Sebition Hall. <laughs> well, uh, well, um, yeah, <laughs> that's too big. It's got to be more intimate. It's got to be something smaller. Mm. 
Yeah, you're probably right. Probably right. Okay, well, keep that in mind, listeners, because you too can <laughs> submit names. Name the winner. Oh, you name the winner. Your room. Yeah, something to think about. What about you, Ashley? You had a very interesting holiday, didn't you? Oh, yes, I did. Um, so uh, on the 16th of December, we received a strange package. On the 16th uh, of December. <laughs> oh, no, from that's... a very mysterious individual uh, who... Um, Ed Norton? Uh, yes. It, we had no idea at the time. Uh, there were amulets frozen in ice that we had to thaw out. There was a puzzle that had to be solved. All of, There was a map, part of a map. Um, we had to travel to Estonia uh, to find the other half of the map, which led to the North Pole. There were more clues. We arrived like in the Arctic Circle. Uh, we you know what's sledding. funny, actually? Can I just, yeah. I just want to interrupt you for a thing. Sure. Right now, the audience is listening. Oh, this guy, he, he's about Thor. He's a very clever writer. What an imagination. What they don't realize at home is this is all 100% true. This is not Ashley <laughs> attempting to be funny or clever. He, this literally happened, and he and his family went to the freaking North Pole. To the right. freaking and they North weren't even pole. looking for the Fortress of Solitude. No, not at all. Although we did find it. No, that's um, that's we, North. We had dinner at uh, what was it called? Like the the uh, like the glass resort or something like that. But the uh, it was made entirely out of ice. All the furniture was made out of ice. Now you haven't lived until you've tried to eat a hot meal sitting on a block of ice. Okay, I didn't you know, know you were such a fan of Die Another Day. Oh, yeah, no kidding, right? It was like I kept waiting for the space laser to melt the uh, restaurant out from underneath me. But um, I know we went sledding one day, and on the way back, the sled broke, uh, I mean, the uh, the van broke down, and we were rescued by a, uh, by a stranger who was driving a sled team pulled by reindeer. And the, so uh, the cool. sled team uh, took us to a, a place that was warm, and it was this strange little workshop, and there were elves there. This and is the amazing. Like took us on a tour. What did the kids and, say when they when they saw Santa? Oh, their fucking heads exploded, dude. There was like kid brain all over Santa Claus. They met Santa Claus. Motherfuckers speak Finnish. You know what I'm saying? Like like a different language. It was crazy. Uh, you know, that, it was, that night Krampus showed up. That night Krampus showed up. Krampus should should have showed up. Uh, but that you was, know, that was we had a great Estonia. time. We went snowmobiling. We went. Dog sledding. I drove a dog sled team across the Arctic Circle. I got to watch like a dog. Like this is the thing you don't think about when you're driving a dog sled team, right? Like those dogs occasionally have to go. And here's what happens. They put their legs up on the harness. And then they just drop the load. And all I could think of as I'm watching this is Babylon. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm thinking Babylon. No, I'm thinking Good Lord, like the physics works exactly the way I suspect that it does. Like we're move, we're still moving, but that's not. And, but th- thankfully, nothing horrible happened. Um, no, it was great, man. Like we did that. We went to London, like, you know, London calling, uh, London calling, like Caden met Ian McKellen. That was awesome. So and he's not making this up either. I'm not making that up either. I got pictures to prove it. <laughs> that was awesome. You know, he gave like pretty, he gave pretty good acting advice to Caden, which I thought was okay. Did he give advice on like what to do when there's metal in the room and you want to control it? 
Yes, he he did actually. He helped uh, Caden hone his uh, his 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 magnetic powers. Okay, which was Great. fantastic. Did he turn? So. Did he teach him how to turn from gray into white? Yes, actually, that was the coolest part. Right, but first you have to die. Oh shit! Okay. <laughs> okay, and and what about you, Darren? What was happening for you during the holidays? Well, most of my time was taken up by. Uh, watching the electronic tracker that was on Ashley's family as they, <laughs> uh, as they traversed through the uh, nether, uh, Netherlands and the nether regions. Um, yeah, I did, I, thankfully, I didn't have to do much. Uh, yeah. my, uh, my mom and brother are uh, uh, off on the East Coast, and uh, I wasn't going to uh, brave uh, the uh, uh, terminals and the uh, airlines and Wise all man. that. Because I, I talk to them every day via FaceTime. So um, I, I'm going to go up and visit them when we are up in uh, Richmond mm. uh, at the convention. And uh, then mm -hmm. I'm going to stay uh, an extra week down with them and then come back after that. So. Yeah, because we'll be in Richmond, Virginia. That's the correct. end of March. Uh, for the end the, of March uh, 25th Con. through something. Can't wait. Yep. Um, by the way, I, I, you know, I do know you were busy over the holidays uh, noodling in your workshop, Darren. And well, of this is true. You came up with this beautiful 2023-1976 Inglorious Trexperts calendar, yes. which uh, goes to all our Trexperts Plus subscribers. And it was a, I mean, I just landed in my inbox and I'm like, what the hell is this? And I looked at it, it was just, it was glorious. It was just a beautiful, wonderful Delightful, I, I, was, I was inspired by uh, seeing a copy of the original 1976 calendar that we all loved, I'm sure, um, uh, except Ashley, who uh, was too young to read. Um, but yes. uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it sort of struck me and said, what would I like to do if I were a Star Trek fan today? And I would like to get one of these calendars. So the Inglorious Trexperts have made their own uh, non-copyrightable uh, uh, material for uh, for our listeners. And yeah. we're all featured in it, and it's 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 great. So if you like to see our ugly mugs, uh, do what we do best: uh, uh, um, talk about Star Trek. Well, uh, subscribe. You can subscribe to Trexperts Plus and get a free digital calendar. Okay, a variety of guest stars. Indeed, indeed, there indeed there are, and it's a wonder. It's again, Darren just showing his incredible creativity. It's just wildly entertaining. I just and like copying old crap. Well, it's super fun. <laughs> and speaking of super fun, I know a lot of you have been really enjoying the countdown. Some of you, not so much. Maybe some of your favorite characters haven't shown up yet. Hopefully, we'll be able to rectify that. Maybe not. We'll find out. Because we're only at number 25 in part seven of our 101 greatest Star Trek characters ever. And we continue the countdown at number 25 with Robert Meyer Burnett. Well, this is an interesting character because, you know, I remember reading when I, when Next Generation first went on the air, there were certain aliens that they kind of said that Rick Berman was not going to go for. And one of those aliens is, of course, the Andorians. Now, you did see Data when he had created Law, when Law was being able to pick what she wanted to be. They did have, you did have a glimpse of an Andorian in that episode, but it wasn't really until one of the first season episodes of Enterprise. I think it was the seventh episode. Uh, the screenplay was actually, the teleplay was written by our friend Fred Decker. And uh, the episode's called The Andorian Incident. Interesting, and, not Decker Unit. <laughs> not Decker Unit. And it introduces the great Jeffrey Combs playing yet another, uh, another, another alien, the alien Shran. How many of my crew did you rescue? 
19. Our complement was 86. Your distress call said you were attacked. Tell her rats. We were escorting our ambassador to the trade conference when they dropped out of war. Ambassador's ship was destroyed in seconds. Tellerites crippled us with their next shot. I've never seen one of their vessels maneuver like this one. Well, those barbarians have been talking peace. They've obviously been improving their warships. Why would the Tellerites agree to let Earth mediate your dispute if they were planning this strike? Perhaps you should ask them. I suggest you scan for our data recorder. It'll contain the sensor logs of the attack. We seem to keep running into each other, Captain. It's fortunate Enterprise was close by. It's not a coincidence. We're carrying the Tellarite delegation. They're aboard this ship. These aren't the people who attacked you. They may know who did. Tran! And let me tell you, or call a Thylex Shran is his full name. Uh, and I mean, Jeffrey Combs, whether he's playing a Ferengi, whether he's playing a Vorta, whether he's, it doesn't matter what he's playing. He killed, he crushed this character. And throughout the series, um, he started out as an antagonist, actually unveiling that the Vulcans uh, maybe sometimes aren't as nice or uh, up to up to altruistic things as they appear to be. And it began a really interesting arc with the Andorians. And he created a character in Shran that quickly rose to the rose to the ranks of one of the great Star Trek characters. He was smart. He was acerbic. He was tactically um, kind of a genius. And he was just an all-around great character, a great formidable uh, antagonist and sometime, sometimes not, sometimes a collaborator with Jonathan Archer. He coined the phrase pink skins, you know, uh, why shouldn't all uh, white white men not have disparaging remarks thrown at them by aliens like Strand? But every time I heard it, it put a smile on my face. Uh, this character was and is, I think, perhaps maybe Enterprises, other than some of the main characters, greatest contribution to the Star Trek canon was was turning the Andorians into really fully, fully fleshed out uh, a gratefully fleshed out alien race. And they had many different, and the Anar were also an offshoot of, of the Andorians. And we saw one of those in Strange New Worlds, actually. And I, I just, I love this character. I love Jeffrey Combs' portrayal of this character. And there was, I thought it was a great, it was, it, they took, Brandon Braga said, we took one of Star Trek's goofiest villains, although the, I don't agree with that at all, because when we met the Andorians for the first time in Journey to Babel, um, they were quite the the actual genuine uh um Andorian was quite formidable. Mm-hmm. And I really I always liked them. It's just because they had the antennas on their heads, which is, you know, one step away from my favorite Martian or whatever. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed the character of Shran. I wish we could have seen more of him, but we did see quite a bit of him throughout the four seasons of Enterprise. And what a character he is. Jeffrey Combs yeah. can really do no wrong, huh, Ashley? Oh my God, yes. I mean, we could do a whole, I mean, I think we actually did a whole show 
on Jeffrey Combs. But uh, but we could still do yet another whole show on Jeffrey Combs. I mean, that guy, like, I think he played more different aliens and more different characters, sometimes in one episode, than anybody uh, this side of Mark Wiener. Well, he, um, he certainly reanimated the Andorians. Yes, he did. Oh, he he took them there. from beyond. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, No, I mean, and he's also, he is also just... The, he's he's a pro. He is the nicest man. Uh, he is so much fun to watch work. I, uh, I I once just put him into an episode of uh, of Dota with a single line because I wanted to bring him in and have it say it have him say it like twenty or thirty times just to hear him talk and do twenty or thirty different iterations of it um, because he is just such a delight and it was my pleasure to pay him. <laughs> well, he, he's just a terrific actor. And I think that one of the great things about Jeffrey Combs is he he can both be uh, uh, a second fiddle or he can take a second fiddle character and turn them into what should have been the main the focus of the episode, the, the main character of the episode. I mean, yes. yeah, they could have done a series. It would have been cost prohibitive because of makeup and things like that. But they could have done a series with Shran headlining that series if they wanted to. He was that yeah. They could do a buddy comedy just with all of Jeffrey Combs' characters together yeah. on one ship. Yeah, they'd only have to hire one guy. Yeah. It's interesting because, of course, um, I don't, you know, uh, I think a lot of us have concerns about, um, you know, how the Archer character was portrayed. And, you know, part of that was he had nobody really to play off of. You know, he was a little older than the other cast. He didn't have you know, sort of really defined relationships. And what Tran gave him was a foil slash friend. And the way their relationship evolved over the course of the series was probably one of the most interesting things about Enterprise yeah. was that whole Archer-Shran relationship. No, and I agree. And and it was it was really great because leading up to the founding of the Federation, especially in the fourth season, there was some really great stuff with with Archer relying on Shran uh, for backup, and and I really I really enjoyed that relationship, and I, it's unfortunate because if you look at the ratings that the show was getting at the time, if it was getting those ratings today, it would be one of the biggest hits on TV. Yeah, but that's yeah. true of most things that you know. That's and, I mean, it, that's why that that whole thing people always say, oh well, you know, if Battlestar Galactica nineteen seventy eight was on the air now, it'd be the number one show on the air. Well, yeah, of course it would have been. You know, it would be because we you know we didn't have five hundred different channels back then. I mean, it's like it's not a, a fair. You know, it's like it's saying, you know, gone one. with the wind, you know, adjusted for... Well, it wasn't that long ago. You know, there was still cable. I hate to tell you, it was long ago, Rob. <laughs> Ancient was, history, like, Rob. I mean, Deep Space Nine just celebrated its 30th anniversary. I know. What yeah, the know. hell? Yeah, I, mean, I used to hang out on the set. just celebrated its second 29th birthday. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it doesn't yeah. want to tell people that it's 30. Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, yeah. 30 years. I mean, we used to watch that every week, religiously. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, it really may, it makes one feel old. I mean, because That's remember when, when, the world Star was new. when Star Trek The Motion Picture came out, it was only 10 years and it felt like it had been an eternity. Yeah. Anyway. Older, okay. wiser, a little more seasoned. So that that's Tran. Um, and uh, one of the gratifying things I, I, I'm, I'm hearing a lot from fans about this countdown is uh, I think the, the, the heavy presence of Deep Space Nine has um, 
uh, uh, prompted a lot of people taking a look at Deep Space Nine, maybe people who weren't fans or weren't as familiar with the show as the original or subsequent iterations. Uh, and once again, we find ourselves on board Deep Space Nine with an intriguing member of the very extended coterie of um, supporting cast, number 24, Ashley Edward Miller. Tell us who it is. Uh, coming in at number 24 is, uh, you know, some people have their favorite Martian. I have my favorite Klingon. Uh, and that would be uh, General, eventually, Chancellor Martok. Wolf. General. The High Council has issued a commendation for the entire crew of the Rotaran. It would seem that you were right. They view the destruction of a Jem'Hadar ship and the rescue of 35 warriors as ample justification for crossing the Cardassian border. Your actions on the Rotaran. At the time, I thought they were disloyal. But I've come to realize that your intention was to remind me of my duty as a soldier of the Empire and as a warrior. For that, I am grateful. You did the same for me once. Worf. On the bridge, during the fight, when you dropped your guard, how did you know I would not kill you? I did not know. <laughs> I see you're still wearing the crest of the House of Moog. Yes. Jadzia calls it a sentimental gesture. Perhaps you would consider replacing sentiment with the symbol of a new beginning. The House of Martok would be honored to welcome the son of Moog into our family as a warrior and as a brother. Of the, uh, of the Klingon Empire, played by the great J.G. Herzler uh, on Deep Space Nine. Again, you know, one of the best cast shows uh in in star trek history um martok is a is a really fascinating piece of work because the truth of the matter is when we first meet martok in deep space nine he's actually a shapeshifter he's a changeling that's right um he's one of the bad guys right it's like he's one of the guys who is leading the fight against the federation like you know, uh, bringing on the split between the Federation and the Klingons and therefore bringing Worf onto Deep Space Nine uh, and Way of the Warrior. But eventually, this changeling Klingon without honor is exposed and executed. Uh, the real Martok is found in a uh, Dominion uh, internment camp along with, uh, we talked about this one, with, uh, with shapeshifter Julian Bashir. Um, and, uh, when he comes back, he shows everybody just how cool and badass he is. He quickly becomes the commander of Klingon forces, uh, in the war against the Dominion. Um, he shows himself to be an excellent commander, an excellent diplomat. Um, he is a, a man, a Klingon of particular depth. And I think like he managed to capture something about the Klingons that, that I think very often, 
um, in a in a world with Lurses and Betors, the uh, the Klingons could lose, where it was very easy for them to become caricatures. And Martok never fell into that. He was always a very complicated man, and no one understood him but his woman. <laughs> um, he had even an interesting relationship with Nog. We talked with we talked about Nog. Uh, a, an episode or two ago, and what a great character he was. Nog, this little Ferengi, like manages to earn the respect, you know, of this this uh, legendary Klingon general. Um, and he gets a he gets a pretty good ending, you know. At the end of the show, he gets to ride off into the sunset, become the Chancellor with his buddy Ambassador Worf, and go targ hunting, you know. Which is what what more could the man want except to read love poetry? to a beautiful Klingon woman and have her throw heavy objects at him. <laughs> well, Hertzler too. I mean, the guy just knocked it out of the park. He played, he played a Klingon as if he was in a Wagnerian opera. Yes. And he was just one of the, again, in a pantheon of great secondary characters, Martok rises above and was just such a great character. And I, I really loved, love this character. And it's, it's what I always wanted from the Klingons. And I got it. I got yeah, it. This. It, it's interesting on Deep Space Nine, because, you know, Michael and then later Ira, they didn't plan necessarily on these characters being around for the run of the show. These great actors made a place for them on the show because they were so great and they elevated the material that they wanted to keep writing for them. And Hertzler is a great example of that, you know, he just took this dialogue to incredible places. And there are a bunch of great Klingon, unlike the Vulcans, there are a lot of great Klingon performances in modern Trek. I mean, there is um, uh, stuff like, um, uh, you know, Duras and Galron, but Martok, there was something truly special about that character. And uh, he's gruff, that voice that he has, and the missing eye, and the, the sutured face, and just and the relationship that he, he ends up developing with Worf. That's where the emergence of Worf on Deep Space Nine really helped. And then, of course, his relationship with Cisco, which is very different, which is also very interesting, and had a lot to do with sort of galvanizing Avery's performance to Cisco, where he came alive because he brought his performance up to match these bigger performances. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. absolutely. A, a a higher tide raises all boats, and uh, you know, when a when a great guest star comes in to uh, to uh, raise the you know raise the cackles a bit, uh, everyone steps up and uh, and responds in kind. And I think it was a a, a very good uh, uh, way to stir things up there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that's General Martog, uh, number twenty four, which takes Martok. us Martok, Martok with a K. Yeah, Martok. With a K. <laughs> with a K. So that takes us, speaking of with a K, that takes us to number That's 23 right. and Darren Doctorman for another character with a K. Another character that ends in OK because we think they're OK. Like Oklahoma. Um, that's right. Uh, look, one of the, one of the greatest early TOS episodes, uh, features a race, of course, that we had never heard of before because it was the first regular episode shot. Um, and this uh, was a representative of what was known as the First Federation. Uh, I think there's only one guy in there. I don't see no Federation. <laughs> um, but uh, it is, of course, Baylock. I'm Baylock. Welcome aboard. 
I'm Captain Kirk. And McCoy and Bailey. Sit. Be comfortable. Go ahead. Be seated. We must drink. This is Tranya. I hope you relish it as much as I. Commander Balak. I know, I know. A thousand questions. But first, the Tranya. Gentlemen. <laughs> Commander Baylock of the flagship Fisarius of the First Federation, which is an amazing giant spacecraft that it, that dwarfs our uh, little friend the Enterprise. And uh, no, it's not made out of ping pong balls. It is something completely alien and e extremely complex. And the magic about it is that, as we find out through the episode, it's only one guy. It's one guy out there representing the First Federation and defending their borders. Uh, obviously, they have uh, some marker buoys placed out there to uh, stop uh, strange uh, ships from invading their space. And uh, Commander Baylock comes out there and he has uh, uh, a very uh, frightening... Uh, uh, Massage. Yeah, uh, uh, presence that he uh, that he lets them uh discover on the enterprise and uh it's a very you know scary alien like uh large craniumed uh being uh that has uh um a a big uh, booming voice that has lurch's voice <laughs> to it and uh it's uh it's really a great introduction to this strange alien race and uh, seeing how Captain Kirk deals with this apparently unbeatable force uh, of uh, just this one giant ship and uh, a little pilot vessel that uh, comes out to not uh, chess poker, not just po yeah, not not ch not chess poker, um, and it's a it's a great sort of uh, uh, look into Kirk's mind as to how he solves problems and. What's so great is it is a uh, it's a a small uh, version of what we will see later on in the uh, in the series is that you know don't believe your first impressions because they're usually wrong and uh, the more you learn about uh, a uh, quote unquote adversary uh, maybe the more you have in common and uh, what we find out of course is that Baylock that we see on the screen is in fact a puppet designed to scare aliens. And uh, no, no. the real Baylock is, of course, uh, Clint Howard, 
uh, a diminutive. He was, I believe, nine years old at the time and uh, bald and uh, in little shiny robes. And uh, he has a little drink dispenser next to his bed, which is very nice. And of course, <laughs> he gives he gives our uh, our crew members uh, what Tranya. he calls Tranya. I hope you is, relish it as much as I. Yeah, I didn't see any relish in there. Um, yeah. But uh, apparently it was uh, uh, grapefruit juice, uh, which is extremely fun. But apparently it had gone rancid by the time they got around to drinking it. Anyway, um, it's a wonderful character because uh, Balok is basically on the same mission that the Enterprise is. Uh, but he has very different resources and uh, a very different uh, uh, outlook. Uh, the uh, First Federation uh, members are apparently seekers as well, and uh, but they need to be very cautious because obviously of their diminutive, diminutive size, they have to uh, project a more forceful uh, outlook to the uh, universe. So it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful little uh, twist on Jekyll and Hyde, and uh, it's. Uh, a really interesting character, and you know, obviously, we saw the face of uh, Baylock the puppet in every uh, closing uh, credits of the series. So it's, uh, I love this character. It, it's uh, in, it impressed on my brain from my youngest age. So uh, let's hear it for Baylock. Let's hear it for Baylock. Clint, Clint Howard was also specifically designed to scare aliens. Oh, see, uh, you know, actually, honestly, I, as, for as, out loud. <laughs> as much as like, look, every episode when like the, the picture of like Balog the puppet yeah. would pop up, freaked me out. Of course. But I honestly found Clint Howard as the real Balog, even as a child. I'm not making this up. This is not bull crap. I found him more unsettling. And I think the reason why is because it wasn't his voice. It, yes. it was the voice. It's, that the adult me voice out. with the kid's body. Yeah, right, yeah, that freaked me out as a kid. Um, I also think this episode and what Balak and the First Federation did was maybe set into motion. Um, our, and we can obviously maybe, maybe talk about this later, but uh, our, our perception of of Kirk as a cowboy. Um, no, look, you but, know, but, but in a good way, not in a bad way, in a good way, because what this episode really did, as you said, was like it, it, it showed us that it shows you that Kirk is a clever son of a bitch. Exactly. It's just cleverness. It yeah. is like it is creating something out of nothing. Yeah. You know, and, and using it to survive and uh, and then earning respect for that, which I think is terrific about this episode. There's no show that more epitomizes the Star Trek philosophy than Cormite Maneuver. If I had to show somebody to, to say, what is Star Trek? Yep. Cormite Maneuver is not my favorite show. It's it's not the best show. Yeah, it, it's but it is the show that embodies the, the philosophy and the virtues of Star Trek. And it is the touchstone that everyone should be following. A lot of people, interviews about certain new Star Treks, have talked about that Star Trek is about trauma which is the most absurd contention that I've ever heard. Star Trek is not about trauma. Trauma, wildly Star, Star Trek is about discovery. It's about family. It's about friendship. It's about optimism, idealism, and hope. That is Star yeah. Trek. Cormite Maneuver encapsulates all of that. That's, yeah. That is Star Trek right there. There it sits. It's not about trauma. I don't know where this idea of Star Trek being about trauma 
Well, uh, because know. because everyone thought that uh, Mr. Bailey was the star of the show. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> that and because you know, there's this this thing now where literally everything is about somebody's goddamn drama. Uh, when you're right, it's like Star Trek is not about. It is about the opposite of that. Star Trek is about our aspiration. Yeah, for the future, it is not about being trapped it's in about something the best awful. From mankind the past. can produce put into stressful situations mm-hmm. and overcoming. Yeah, yeah, and overcoming adversity and 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 understanding. I mean, again, we've seen it many times. Devil in the Dark Arena. We we see something that's horrifying that turns out not to be what we think it is. Core my maneuver did it first. Remember, this is the first episode that was filmed, other than the two pilots. Was yeah. the first aired because they had to do the effects and it took forever. So it aired yeah. much later in the season. But it's the first episode that was filmed. And it, 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 in a way, it is the first episode of Star Trek. And yeah. it is it is Star Trek. And Baylock is such a great character. And again, it's that imagination we talked about in the Telosians. We talked about it time and time again. It's the prototype, the model for them all. You, you have a, a kid with an adult voice, you know, and and, <laughs> they, they, and, and yet there's a, 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 he has a little mannequin that he's fooling people the thing he's a horrible creature he's not that at all he's just you know on this mission of exploration and he wants to learn more about us he doesn't trust our memory tapes because yeah. we could they could be a fabrication what a great just puts a smile on your face it's yeah. just it's a wonderful it's a wonderful conceit and Baylock is a great character don't you think Rob I absolutely do and and like you said what what I really loved about this is it predates say Empire Strikes Back. Look at me, judge me by my size, do you? And one of the things I loved when I was a kid, the Viserys' approach to the Enterprise was, for me, one of the scariest things I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. Because it moves very quickly. The It just dwarfs the Enterprise. And it, it remains one of my favorite. The one shot where the Viserys pulls up to the Enterprise is one of my favorite effect shots of all time because it really inspired awe in me and and as a little kid, you know, I was five years old when I started watching Trek regularly. And everything, the Baylock puppet, and then the revelation at the end really put the zap on my young mind. And I remember as a kid, I always carried the lesson of this with me, you know. And, you know, we're both captains, you know, we're each proud of our ships at the end. And, and I was like, wow, this little dude is just as formidable as Kirk in his own way. Yeah. And yet, you know, have a drink. Come, come see me. And it led, it, as a child, I think that there, it, it leaves an indelible mark if you see this episode for the first time as a kid. And I, I, I imagine that this was the very first episode of Star Trek I ever saw. I don't know if that's true. Mm. But I, I'd like to, I know that the first episode of Twilight Zone I ever saw was to serve man. But this episode was what made me fall in love with Star Trek as a child, as a five-year-old. And I understood what was going on. I mean, I might not have understood the, there's no place for, for uh, um, you know, Mr. Bailey's kind of scared and freaking out. And, yeah. you know, I understood all that. But but I didn't, as a child, this, if I wanted to get a child interested in Star Trek, this would be the episode I would show them to anybody, but especially a kid, because there's true awe and wonder and terror terror. And things aren't what they seem. You know, don't judge a book by its cover. One last note for me on this is that uh, this was the episode that they put in clips on the cassette that came with the uh, Mego tricorder. 
And uh, when I got that, I would play that, uh, play those bits of the episode and remember how wonderful it was to watch the episode. So it has that uh, extra toyetic quality to it as well. Yeah, great. Well, that's number 23. And number 22 may come as a surprise to people. Um, people may have expected to see this character a little higher on the list, but, uh, but he's not, but still making, a, making an appearance in our top 25, Robert Burnett. Well, I have to say, you know, this is a character that we're introduced to very early on in Encountered Farpoint. And what's what's interesting about this is there's earlier iterations of this character, uh, like in the Questar tapes. And Roddenberry had dealt with this before, but it's, of course, Brent Spiner as Data. Sir. There is a celebration on the holodeck. I have no right to be there. Because you failed in your task. Oh, God, no. I came that close to winning, Data. Yes, sir. I almost cost you your life. That is true, sir. But, Commander... Will... I have learned from your example. What could you possibly have learned from that ordeal? That at times, one must deny one's nature, sacrifice one's own personal beliefs to protect another. Is it not true that had you refused to prosecute, Captain Lavoie would have ruled summarily against me? Yes. That action injured you and saved me. I will not forget it. You're a wise man, my friend. Not yet, sir. But with your help, I am learning. Uh, and by the way, uh, Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong. They didn't know, some of the cast, like Frakes, had no idea, was it Data or Data? That's how correct. were they? How yeah. were they going to pronounce the name? And it wasn't until Patrick the Bible, Stewart... The Bible spells it out as data yeah so patrick yeah. stewart completely ignored it and when patrick stewart said data yeah. that the, the history was made mm -hmm. and, and i have to tell you i mean obviously data quickly became a fan favorite because like spock he 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 was on this quest he wanted to be more human that's what he wanted he was you know Riker makes the the pinocchio analogy early on in, in encounter at farpoint and, and we never hear it again no well well <laughs> Maybe, but uh, it's it's really interesting um, to see how this character developed because it was clear to anybody watching the show that even though Brent Spiner played the character like a robot, there was something in his indelible performance that made you understand this man had a, this robot, this android had a soul. And throughout the course of the series, he was actually given a lot of really interesting things to do. Whether he was off on his own, not knowing who he was because he'd been affected by radiation, or whether he was playing a gunfighter in the whole quest in the holodeck, whether he decided to become a father, whether he ended up in his first command of a starship. And there was a lot of great episodes written for Data. And obviously, I mean, let's face it, he's fully functional. So there was always that element of and it as well. And a variety of pleasurings. Uh, and I, I think this character is great. I think I, I can't imagine any other actor 
in the role of Data than Brent Spiner. And what's really interesting, when, when I interviewed him for the Blu-ray set, you know, he said to me that he'd never watch an episode of Next Generation. The only things that he'd seen were the movies because he was contractually obligated to go to the premieres. And I said, come on, really? You've never watched an episode of the show ever? And he said, no, Michael Dorn watches the episodes. I, I don't. I don't watch any of the episodes. And I said, so how did you keep track of, you know, of your performance? Well, and he's like, I decided on my performance and I let the scripts take me where they, where they took me. And, you know, I'm going to say something controversial here. But if you want to see what Brent Spiner can do, even though he's exhausted, he can barely stand up because of the schedule they put him on. Watch one of the worst episodes of Star Trek ever, Masks. Mm -hmm. Masks is a terrible episode, and Brent was very, very tired when he did it. But damn, if he didn't give it his all. He tried to do everything he could to make that episode. Work. Well, some would say he tried and failed. Uh, tried and died? Because he, he, tried. You got, he tried and died. You got, you don't remember. I mean, and Rob, Rob is saying he had just done thine own self, which he's very good in. Yes. And, and then he got handed the script like the night before. Um, and he played like nine characters and he was like, what the hell am I supposed to? I have no time to prep. I have no time to, I don't know. You know, he, so he just winged it. it it's yep. a really difficult situation to put an actor in. Um, and you know, it's a terrible episode and terrible I don't episode. think he's particularly good in it, but you know, um, I, I think that, you know, he was very versatile. He did some really good things. I think uh, they leaned on his versatility a little too much because I, I do think that after a while, all these other characters became more of the same, you know, lore was interesting, but soon was sort of a caricature. And then you were seeing more of that. And by the time you get to some of the more, the newer shows, it, it, it's same, the same argument we have about, should they have brought Spock back? after um, uh, he dies in Khan, and our, our argument would be no, it would have been more interesting to have to live with death and, and the death of that character and what that does to the, the, the ensemble that they shouldn't have brought Spock back. I would make the same thing. If you're going to kill him in Nemesis, which they did, leave him dead. Yeah. And, 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 and the new shows, he should not be there. Said so they twisted themselves in the pretzels to find stuff to get Brent to do. And quite honestly, I just don't think Brent's all that interesting in these other roles, nor is it necessary. No, they never, those, those other characters never had that depth. What was interesting about lore was the contrast. Um, and it was fun to have, uh, data essentially play against his mirror counterpart. Right. Like that was the thing that, that that when those episodes did work and they did not all work, um, that's what made them work was seeing that. And it was like a contrast enhancer. Right. It was the black velvet underneath the diamond that lets you see how well cut it is. Um, and I, I think that Data at his best is obviously a very interesting character. I, I think. You know, uh, another terrible episode is Skin of Evil, but it is an episode where I think it's difficult not to fall in love with Data mm -hmm. um, because of his reaction uh, to Tasha Yar's death and, and what he says mm -hmm. about it and realizing that not only does he remember, it's not like he would forget it, not only does he remember his experience with her, but that it made an impression on him other than simply the memory. Um, and, you know, look, it's, again, at his best, like, Data Data is is great. He had lots of little moments, like, um, you know, his very first command, I think, uh, it was, what, the fourth season? No, Rede I'm sorry, it was, it was Redemption, season Redemption part, two. part Two. 
you know, when he like, you know, snaps at his as his first officer. I mean, it's just it just it, he does interesting stuff throughout. But he was, I think, watered down, diluted by and oh, now he's lore and now he's B9 or whatever the hell. And they bought back that debt, brought bought back that death. Um, the emotion chip, I don't think did him any favors. I mean, I thought he was good. I thought it was I thought it worked in first contact. Um, but it didn't work at all in generations. It was just no. annoying. Because it, it was just didn't a freak out direction. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was just the freak out chip. Uh, we do see, you know, it's not a secret that he, Brent Spiner comes back in Picard season three. I will say, uh, I think everybody's going to be pleasantly surprised with how they see that develop. Um, because it was well written. Yeah, good. And, no, and I, I, I want to give a shout out. There's an episode that not many people talk about called The Most Toys mm-hmm. from the third season. And Love there it's been episode. hotly debated, you know, <laughs> that did would Data have committed murder? Would, would he have killed Kivas Fajo? I mean, would he have done it? Uh, they say that they're a phaser, the phaser discharged, maybe. But, I think he would have. But the Absolutely. end of that. I mean, that, of, that is his journey to becoming human. Right. <laughs> that is the end of that episode when he confronts Saul Rubinick and also in the original uh, scene when he confronted um, David Rappaport, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who obviously didn't finish that episode, but he delivers a, an incredible performance. And there's a lot of great, uh, great things that Brent Spiner did. And I think there's a reason why he's obviously a fan favorite character. But, you know, he he's one of the most endearing. And, and I don't know, maybe he should have been up higher. But I, I'm a big data fan. So I think he elevated a lot of mediocre episodes. You know, yep. I mean Schizoid Man is better and has any right to be, thanks to him. Mm-hmm. Pen, Pen Pals is better. I mean, Data Days Day is a terrific episode. I mean, yep. he's in a lot of Ensigns of Command. He's he's great in a lot of episodes. I um, think the, the reason that he's he's so far down on this list is basically due to oversaturation. Mm, yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's really interesting what Seth MacFarlane did with uh with the Kalon um Isaac, Isaac, Isaac they yeah. did. They they really played into that having a relationship with Penny, uh, right. uh, in that in that show. And clearly, I mean, Seth MacFarlane's such a next generation fan, but he took that data having a relationship with a human being much further on Orville than they did yes. on Next Generation because the times have changed. And you can get away with it, but I think that they did some really great stuff. Well, also when Isaac becomes the villain is also very interesting. Yes. So Orville did some very interesting things with that character that, um, you know, you know, Deep Space Nine didn't, I mean, you know, Next Generation didn't necessarily do. But, you know, and I don't know, did anybody read Brent's novel? And, uh, uh, fan, uh, fan, um, fan fan film, fan fiction, fan fiction. I I haven't yet. Yeah. It's cute. I I listened to the audio book and it's, it, 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 he has he has some fun with it, um, and uh, 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 the audio book's good because he has the rest of the cast reading their roles, and um, you know. But then there's some cheesy stuff like they go to a party at Gene Roddenberry's house, and he has a dog named Con. And as uh, those of us who've been to Gene's house knew, he did not have a dog named Con, and it was just sort of cheesy. Yeah. So, so but anyway, it, it's a cute it's a cute book. It's worth a read or a listen if uh, if you have the time. Um, but, uh, you know, he had a very, it's interesting because Brent had a very schizophrenic relationship with the franchise. And, you know, he was the one who wanted to be killed off in Nemesis. And that's one of the things I always resent with the actors, too. It's like they want to be killed off. OK, but then they want to come back. 
You know, yeah. they <laughs> want to like, play the death scene, but they don't want to miss out on the rest of it. But then yeah. all of a sudden, a couple of years later, because they think the franchise is on the way out, so I'll be killed, right? And then it's like, oh, no, the franchise is coming back. Oh no, oh. hire me. You know, and it, it it's going fine without me. I better come back. And uh, you know, I just, I just, I, I wish, I, I wish these shows would evolve and move forward rather than always stay in place. Um, but though trapped by trauma. So, okay. But anyway, that's data at number 22. Be interested to see as we, we get closer and closer to revealing our number one pick, uh, number 21, Ashley Edward Miller. We're back on deep space nine. Well, you know, the only thing better than data are 21 other characters, including, uh, <laughs> number 21. Uh, one of my very favorites and again, played by, We've talked about this man already. Uh, one of my very favorite actors, uh, Jeffrey Combs, playing Wei Yun. You asked to see me, Major. That's right. First, I... tell me something. What do you think of this? It's one of Ziel's paintings. I know who the artist is. Her father gave it to me. He claims it won some sort of prize on Cardassia. Golducat must be very proud. I suppose. <laughs> is it... Any good? I think so. Why don't you? I don't know how to judge it. You see, my people lack a sense of aesthetics. That's too bad. I sometimes think so as well. But if aesthetics were truly important, the founders would have included it in our genetic makeup. Or they made a mistake. Gods don't make mistakes. Though... Sometimes, I think it would be nice to be able to carry a tune. Um, now, the first most important thing to understand about Wayun is that there are many copies. Uh, they have a plan. A, they have a plan. <laughs> uh, you know, he is a, he is a clone. Um, it is his job to represent the founders. It is his job or the clone's job to uh, to to be sort of the political officer, as it were, uh, for the Jem Hadar, who really only have two jobs: kicking ass and chewing bubblegum, and they are not provided with bubblegum. They are instead provided uh, with a substance called Ketracel White, which keeps them ad addicted uh, and keeps them loyal to the founders because otherwise they will die. Now, I bring that up not to divert into talking about the Jem'Hadar, but to talk about the introduction of Weyun and I think the moment that really just defined this character and defined his race the Vorta. Um, so Weyun first appears in a DS9 episode called To the Death, which is really cool. It's a cool man on a mission story. Um, it's the Jem'Hadar uh, and Weyun. Basically, it's a it's a it's a Dominion uh, Federation joint operation to take down uh, an Iconian gateway. The Iconian gateways were introduced in a second season TNG episode called Contagion, and they basically give you the power to teleport anywhere. Uh, at any time, however you like it. Um, so it's an incredibly dangerous technology. And uh, as they are preparing to to go on the mission, to go on the attack, the Vorta, Weyun, is passing out the Ketracel White to the Jem Hadar. And it's very ritualistic. And you can tell from the Jem Hadar that it really means something to them. And they are very into it. But the way that Jeff Combs plays it 
It's he just tosses it off, right? Like, like it's just, you know, then receive this reward for the founders. May it keep you strong. Like he does not care one way or the other what happens to these Jem Hadar because he doesn't. He is bored with the whole thing. And yet he is very committed to his job. He is the ultimate bureaucrat uh, who just happens to be the face man of the uh, most fearsome empire in the galaxy. Like, I don't care what quadrant you're talking about, you know, uh, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. It doesn't matter. The, uh, the Dominion is is terrifying. And, uh, and Weyun is just the perfect way to look at them. And he evolves his clones evolve every clone has a slightly different personality um they in their own way become uh sympathetic they in their own way uh become heroic which is one of the great hallmarks of deep space nine these characters were all incredibly complex and they could become um you know people that we could get behind without uh, without defying our, our, our core understanding of who they are. Weyun could be interesting. Um, he could be someone that you could, um, even root for at times while knowing that he's the goddamn bad guy. Uh, but there you go. That's, that, that's Weyun. I love him and I love Jeff. So. Well, what I loved about the Vorta and he played it really well is, is they, they're religious zealots too. You know, they have this religious fervor in the belief in their creators, the the founders. And I I really like that there's there's the kind of not not evil priest, but misguided zealot that's dangerous because of it, yet it really does enjoy uh backing up his will kind of thing. And and I liked how he gave the different Wayuns a slightly different color you know, each iteration, and it was great. I mean, his performance was fantastic. Just to reassure everybody that the rest of the characters in our list are not played by Jeffrey Combs. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, take those off your betting slips right now. We can't hear you, Mark. Can't hear you, Mark. We can't hear you, Mark. We, we can't Spoiler hear you. Alert. We can't hear there you. We what, Spoiler alert. Genesis. Brunt does not make our list. Sorry. No, he so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little, you know, Brunt, little hint. Brunt Spiner? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I have to say, you know, look, Weyoun, he's so wormy in such a delightful way. The way he sucks up to the changelings. You know, he's just like, you know, I, 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 you know, he'll do anything to keep them happy. It's sort of like the Republicans and Trump. But he's like, he'll do anything to keep the these changelings you know, happy, so wormy. And, but you're right. There's different nuances to his, um, uh, his, uh, performance each time. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's amazing because, you know, there is an episode of D Space Nine where he literally plays Weyoun, Brunt, and, um, and, uh, who's the other guy? Um, plays the Frangi, the, 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 the Gemadar. Yeah, and, and Shran. Uh, but he doesn't no, play Shran in that episode. He, he plays Shran oh, oh, in one no, episode. Right. Yeah, so, so who's the third that he plays in that? Because it's remarkable that he plays. He plays all three. Like, how can we possibly? I know, right? Him? What's the third? What's the third character? He plays oh Jadzia. Yeah, he does. No, he that plays. He plays. He, 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 no, God. Oh, oh my God, we're losing it. We're losing. How are we losing? It? We're supposed to be the spurts. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, suffice it to say, uh, Wayun is just, it's such a nuanced character. And he's so interesting in the in this role. And and again, it's it's like he's playing this political game. 
yeah, whether you know he's sucking up the Cardassians or the Romulans or or trying to convince Cisco that he's no threat. Um, and uh, and and you know the Jem'Hadar just hate him as they do all the Vorta, but they kind of like. You know, because they control the Ketracel White, have to like obey them. But it's great whenever they break the chains, and you see that in the cards, and you see it in Rocks and Shoals, and like you, you could tell it's like, man, if we were in addicts and we could just get, you know, free, free of the Ketracel White, we would not, we would just destroy these Vorta. And it's just <laughs> such a, it's such a great piece. You know, Star Trek for a long time, and even the original series is guilty of this. Okay, you know, they'll be the Russians, our stand-ins for the Russians, they'll be our stand-in for the Japanese, you know, the, the Borg or Cyberpunk or William Gibson, you know. And, and it's like Deep Space Nine came up with this really cool concept. Like, okay, we're not just going to have one villain. We're going to have, the, the, the you know, there's the multiple, the, the whole uh, people in the Delta Quadrant. We have the Vorta and we have the Jem'Hadar and we have the Changelings and... It's something that Enterprise tried to do with their, where they had in the, you know, a bunch of different villains, but it didn't work the way that Deep Space Nine did. It was such a great conceit because we'd never seen something like it before. Yeah, you have the Godfathers and you have the Capo regime. Yeah, yeah, the four families. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they committed to um, to their premise, right? There were no easy outs. So rocks and shoals. You know, when you've got like the Jem'Hadar ship and we've got, you know, our our heroes who are crashed, you know, on this planet and at each other's throats and only like one group can survive, realizing that the Jem'Hadar are running out of Ketracel White and yeah. they are just going to die. Yeah. And they're yeah. going to come for you. And it, there isn't some magical tech to tech solution that like, wow, maybe like if we can help them by by, you know, curing them of their addiction to yeah. Ketracel White, they won't die. And then they can be our buddies. Well, that There's was mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I say it set the um, the Jemadar up as cannon fodder. And what you end up what they do that's so interesting is give them this honor, this this kind of honorableness about them. Like you see it in Rocks and Souls, Shoals, and you kind of see it into the death. Because the guy has threatened to kill Cisco, and at the end he lets Cisco go, and he, they sort of come to a meeting of the minds. He says, "But the next time we meet, we'll be enemies again." And he's such yeah. a weird, honorable. Na I, and I, yeah, they have a code. The, you know, it's not like the Klingons, but it's like, but they definitely have a code, and their they their loyalty to the founders is real. It's not just the Catrasel White, uh, and when they give you their word, they mean it. When they yeah. say they're going to do something, they mean it. Yeah. And what's what's again like you know I, I talked about the contrast enhancer before. It's like the the Vorta in a way in a way are a contrast enhancer because they're the like you said it's like they're the ultimate weasels, right? They tell you something and they don't mean it. They mean the opposite thing, and that's such a wonderful contrast to have. Like when you've got those kinds of characters together, it's so interesting because this is a you know we we keep talking uh, Jeffrey Combs, Jeffrey Combs, Jeffrey Combs. I mean, but everything he touches just turns to gold. I mean, he's he's, he's such um, the secret uh, weapon of these shows. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Okay, so that brings us to number 20, and we're back to Darren Docterman and another uh, classic villain. Number 20. Uh, and remember, uh, he's not a villain. He's an adversary. And uh, <laughs> in this case, uh, it's as if uh, we asked the... Uh, 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 we asked the holodeck to create an adversary equal to Captain Kirk. And uh, that's what we get in uh, uh, the uh, episode. Um, 
you know. Balance of Terror? Yeah, that's the one. I'm getting old. Balance of Terror. Where well, we, we are getting old. Where we meet the uh, the only Romulan, apparently, that doesn't have a name, uh, apart from the uh, female Romulan commander in Enterprise Incident. Um, we have the Romulan commander. It is good we approach the neutral zone. Not too soon for me to see the stars of home. I know they are following. If an Earth ship. Why does he not attack? First study the enemy, seek weakness. If I were their commander, that is what I would do. Danger and I are old companions. We've seen a hundred campaigns together, and still I do not understand you. I think you do. No need to tell you what happens the moment we reach home with proof of the Earthmen's weakness. And we will have proof. The Earth commander will follow, he must. And when he attacks, we will destroy him. Our gift to the homeland, another war. If we are the strong, is this not the signal for war? Must it always be so? How many comrades have we lost in this way? Our portion, Commander, is obedience. Obedience? Duty. Death and more death. Soon even enough for the Praetor's test. I find myself wishing for destruction before we can return. <laughs> Were I not, like you, I am too well trained in my duty to permit it. Continue evasive maneuvers. Now, back to the first course. Of, the, uh, of one of the proudest ships in the Romulan fleet. Uh, his uh, his best friend is the uh, Centurion, and uh, the first officer is named Decius. We know all these guys, but he doesn't get a name. <laughs> but he's played by Mark Leonard, uh, and it's the first time Mark Leonard appears in uh, Star Trek. And, of course, he later uh, appears uh, looking almost identical as uh, Spock's father. Um, and uh, we see that uh, the Romulans are basically the Vulcans. Uh, but uh, they took the different. They took the path not taken, and uh, they are a warlike uh, race, uh, loosely based on the uh, the Roman legions, uh, much like the Godfather and the uh, this thing that's uh, existed for hundreds of years. Um, the uh, the Romulan commander is a stellar representation of the Romulans. He is smart, he is cunning, he is uh he is nearly capable of destroying Kirk and capturing the Enterprise. Nearly. Um and what's great about it is that uh, he and Kirk play a battle via uh, uh subspace uh, radio and uh and uh you know uh silent uh, maneuvers and trickery and it's really a fascinating journey to battle this uh, this very smart adversary and we get a chance to uh, be uh, on board with the uh, Romulans and hear what's going on with them and it's uh, one of these great uh, Star Trek things by uh, letting us hear the other side and it's uh, it's really great, especially the scene where he uh, he is almost regretful 
that uh, he has to do this thing, uh, my gift to the empire, another war. Um, and it's it's uh, absolutely brilliant. And, uh, you know, Mark Leonard plays it uh, uh, wonderfully. Um, he has, uh, you know, uh, uh, gravitas uh, up the wazoo in this episode. Um, in another, uh, you know, in another universe, I could have called you friend. It's it's so cool. And if only we'd we could have had more adventures against him or with him, perhaps. Um, it's really a, a wonderful character. And uh, he, uh, you know, he uh, does so much as uh, offers up the body of his uh, dead friend as a, a decoy to uh, try and convince the Enterprise that they've been destroyed. Um, it's really powerful. And uh, and you see him, uh, you know, uh, uh dressed down his uh, first officer and he reduces him two steps in rank and uh he's really a badass and he's he's uh just this side of uh, uh uh of defeating Kirk which I find extremely exciting um because uh you know if uh, if Spock hadn't been clumsy and pressed the button on his uh on his panel uh the Romulans might have won actually so uh it's really I, I i love the episode i love the character and uh i love this introduction to the Romulans i wish that they hadn't been sort of degraded over the years honestly i truly love that character i love that character so much that uh you know when we were going to do our uh well when it, it when there was the alternate universe where uh, we were going to do our Star Trek three, I mean, I like, I thought that, that if you were going to do, if you needed to have a black hat, if you needed to have a con, um, that the right guy would be the Romulan commander because who better to be an adversary for a, for a young Kirk and to, in a, in his own way, mentor him, right? Like one of the things that came across from that character was not just, you know, that he was, that's awesome, that he was an excellent warrior and commander, but that he was a man of great depth. Um, and, you know, he thought about things and he felt things, but he still did things. He did not allow those, those feelings, um, or his angst to get in the way of making the decisions that he had to make. He allowed himself until to the end. And then yes, until the end. Until the very but he end. acted. Yeah. Uh and you know, I like to think that in a in a different world, uh, you know, he and Kirk could have been, should have been friends. Um, yeah. you know, or again, you know, a, a, a mentor figure. I just I have always found him fascinating. Well, Rob, isn't it interesting that before the Romulans discovered shoulder pads, they were such an honorable and interesting adversary? Um, and is that what we're really responding to, the fact that they are so honorable? Well, I've, look, I think what, what's really interesting is is the, there's a debate that's happening throughout this episode where the Romulan commander's best friend, the call him the Centurion, you know, they're really debating the merits of the civilization that they're a part of. Right. And it was really fascinating to watch because this elevated the, the idea that, you know, you think, okay, at first they're portrayed as sneaking across the border and destroying these colonies. But then for the very first time in Star Trek history, you move away from the point of view of our characters. Right. And, and you're, you're now inside this alien ship and you're learning about these guys. And it really turns the table. This is another thing Star Trek, I think, never really did like this again where you're suddenly the perspective has changed of the show 
and you like these guys. You yeah. you're, you're like you wow, respect I, them. You respect them, and 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 I think that they're not just noble. They're the Romulan commander is smart, and he's philosophical, and you realize that as a as a a creature of duty. I mean, when he he says if you know the son Sharon's like, well, if there's not if there's not weakness, aren't we supposed to exploit it? And he and Mark Leonard is so frustrated. He says, must it always be so? Yeah. And he's it, it, it's so. There's a lot of times in Star Trek, like like at the end of Mirror Mirror, the illogic of waste, Mister Spock, you know, and th- this idea that all conflict is something that should be avoided, and usually the people on the other side, especially in the '60s, to get this, you know, during the Cold War, that our enemies that have wiped out members of the Federation that we've seen in the episode are actually honorable people. That are that, like you said, Mark. Yes, it, it was something that one. It was revolutionary to see. I mean, Rod Sterling delved into this kind of thing, but never like this. Never full on. Here's the face of the enemy, and the enemy is us. And but you know why I think that is, Rob? I think it's because, and we've said this before, people like Gene, and people like Gene Kuhn, and even Freddie Freiberger mm-hmm. were all veterans. Yeah. They'd all seen the face of war. Right. They fought wars World War II. They, uh, you know, in Gene Kuhn's case, he was, you know, in, in Korea, and so they knew that it wasn't, um, you know, just a man on a mission. Not just a game. They saw. They looked at, at the enemy into the face, of, and they realized they were just like us, and that they were taking orders maybe from people who were evil and horrible. But in mo- most of the cases, these were people who were just as scared and terrified, and you know, following orders like like they were. And so they were able to capture um, that. I mean, the people who are the most against war generally are the people who fought who fight them. Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I read a really interesting uh, Sam Fuller's biography over the, the holiday when I was sick. And uh, this really has nothing to do with anything other than the story blew me away. So, you know, obviously he was with the Big Red One and he made a movie about it late, many years later. But um, so... He right before um, the fight in the Arden Forest, or it was right after something. He um, um, uh, went to a USO show where Marlena Dietrich was, and of course, everyone is just you know it's the great Marlena Dietrich. I mean, the Margot Robbie of her time, right? And so they all, everybody wants to get backstage to see her. Nobody's getting backstage to see her. So finally, he he tells the guy at the at the door, Sam Fuller says, "I got to see, I got to see her, got to see." He said, "Marlene Dietrich." He said, "No, nobody gets back to see her." He says, "No, no, I, I, you know." So finally, she hears this, this thing. And she says, "Well, what is it? I need you to send a message and and back home." And she says, "I, I can't send messages. You realize how many hundreds, thousands of true, you know, uh, GIs give me messages for their girlfriends or their mothers." So no, this is my agent. She goes, "What?" She goes, "Yeah, I need you to give an agent uh, my a message to my agent Charlie Feldman." She goes, "Wait, Charlie Feldman's my agent." And he goes, "Oh, well, just tell him cigars." She goes, "What?" She goes, "Yeah, cigars. He'll know what it means." And she's like, "I'll do that, soldier." And 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 he says, "I apologize for you know I stink and I'm tired and things. I'll, I'll leave you now." And she says, "What's your name?" And she says, "Doesn't matter. He'll know who it is." And he leaves. And three weeks later at the front, he gets a box of cigars from Charlie Feldman. Marlena Dietrich had given him the message. And then years later, I guess he's at the Polo Lounge or at Chasen's or something. He'd become a fairly successful director. And he sees Marlena Dietrich and he's introduced to, uh, by somebody who says, Oh, he says, Oh, Miss Dietrich, we met before. She goes, No, I don't, I, I remember you. She goes, No, no, you, you would remember me. And, and he goes, and she says, No, I don't think so. So, well, anyway, it's nice to, nice to see you again. And then, um, uh, he starts to walk away. He says, "Hey, soldier, did you ever get those cigars?" And uh, 
And then he goes, yeah. And she totally remember, suddenly remembered him. And it was like, it's just, I, that story just was blew me away. It's yeah. just like an unbelievable story. And, uh, but you know, there's something for these people. I mean, I just, there, there is something that, you know, the genes and, um, you know, like I said, even Fred Freiberger and a lot of the people who wrote television at that time, they had experienced life and it's kind well, of the what whole greatest generation. Yeah. 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 And it's not just being in war. It's also traveling and, and, and being in other cultures and, you know, being around people from other countries. It's something Rob and I always said when we were traveling with Free Enterprise that the message of Star Trek about boldly going isn't necessarily about space. The message to us was, boldly go around whatever you do in your life and 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 you know, suck it up and and experience everything you can learn all that is learnable no well, yeah. knowable well no and it's 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 true like i of course you know i hadn't i hadn't been to europe till we made free enterprise and it's sort of interesting that what brought us you know <laughs> to the, to the european continent was our movie we made with william shatner so it was literally william shatner made us boldly go uh, where we'd never come before, and and it was it was quite quite uh, quite an eye opening experience. And every time I've been able to get back to Europe or to Asia or wherever I've been able to go, it's 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 I mean it's because of Star Trek. It really is. It's like let's go. I you boldly know? went, but on a ship with children on it. Yes, to you the did. North Pole, to the freaking the North, North Pole. Pole. That story is almost as crazy as the Sam Fuller story. <laughs> Love it. It's show. nuts. But I mean, it's it's not to be not to be trifled with, you know. Yeah. And and um, I like you said, Mark. I think that one of the things that's missing from a lot of entertainment is I think there's an authenticity. Yeah. Like when when you when you saw the Romulan commander talk to his centurion, it felt like you were seeing something that had gravitas and weight to it. That it wasn't just a science fiction allegorical action adventure show that you were catching a glimpse of of something truly profound and it felt and, like these two had known each other for years yes yes and i and not to bag on strange new worlds but the final episode was a retelling of balance of terror was a retelling of this episode and the thing that they completely missed they recreated so much of the original even down to shot choices was the relationship between the romulan commander and his centurion was not not like the original episode at all. And I felt it really missed the mark because of it. And I was quite surprised that the Centurion sold out his commander. And well, I if, wasn't even going to bring that up, but I mean, it's like, it, even the casting on that, it's oh. like... <sighs> well, I, it, I, I looked at that and I thought to myself, if there's ever, if there's any uh, uh, example of when we're always railing about not just Star Trek, but modern entertainment, the juxtaposition between the Strange New World's retelling of Balance of Terror and the original Balance of Terror, look at how the Romulan commander and his centurion are treated. And it is there is a huge gulf that really pretty much sums up what I think a lot of people are disappointed in in modern IP. Yeah, but the fact is Mark Leonard is the Romulan commander. It's a superb performance. And, you know, it's funny because people have written articles and fanzine stories and been obsessed with the Romulans for, you know, 50 years. And really, you know, in the original show, there were, what, three episodes? They're in the Deadly Years, they're in Balance of Terror, and they're in the Enterprise Incident, right? Am I, they're not in any other. And yet that's, they've left right. such a footprint. 
because and this is all because of Mark Leonard and the Romulan commander. He yeah. he he created that race in a way out of whole cloth with that performance and uh and and the supporting cast Lawrence Montague as uh Montaigne, Lawrence Montaigne, Montaigne yeah. as uh, uh as his uh, second in command and um the the doctor the centurion who's his uh his his, his consul um it's 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 remarkable they created a whole civilization with the I help will... of uh, ancient rome of okay. uh you know in 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 this one uh you know 53 minute episode i i do have to give it up also for uh jack donner yeah. who yeah. plays sub commander tal in right. the enterprise incident he also and and he got it he he got it he and you know he looked the part he looked like a romulan he looked like a vulcan um and but his performance was fantastic and i think that we saw the romulans and you know what i have to say this the romulans do show up in the last episode of the the first season of next generation and they were just really not cast well not to not to disparage those actors no because but, i think one of them was marco lemo uh yes right. he was and um it was not good. We're no. back. Oh, well, you know what? I have to tell you, like, I've, I dug that. I was like, oh, that, like, that, that worked for me. I don't know. Oh, the setup is great. Yeah. yeah but they all, it's just, then it does nothing happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the wardrobe doesn't help. No, it doesn't. No. It all looked like Sean Young and Blade Runner with the shoulder pads. That's right. And those costumes, I don't know why they work so well, because they're kind of goofy if you think about what they really are. But man, do they look good in the original mm -hmm. series? In the original, yeah, they do. They do. Well, they have okay. they have swashbuckle to them. Yes, they buckle their swash. Yes. This is this is this is this is true. Okay, well, um, speaking of a uh, character that's neither adversary nor friend nor foe nor I don't know what he is, but he is number nineteen on our list. Ashley, tell us who's next. Um, number nineteen is. Just yet another entry in the hit parade of unbelievably amazing recurring characters on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, and I, I think, you know, this is, this is certainly, uh, one of the most, uh, memorable of those, certainly one of the most impactful. Um, he kept everyone guessing. He was played by the great, uh, Andy Robinson. Uh, it was Callahan. Also, uh, you know, he was in Hellraiser, uh, but yeah. he's just, you know, he's a, he's a great actor. He's a great guy. Um, and he has this amazing voice and way about him. And the character he played, uh, was a simple tailor who is not so simple named or was Elam. He, a tinker? he was a tinker was and a soldier, soldier and, a spy. and a spy. Uh, but the character's name was Elam Garrick. It's Dr. Bashir, isn't it? Of course it is. May I introduce myself? Uh, yes, yes, of course. My name is Garrick, a Cardassian by birth, obviously. The only one of us left on this station, as a matter of fact. So, I do appreciate making new friends whenever I can. You are new to this station, I believe. I am, yes. Though, though, I understand you've been here quite a while. Ah, you know of me, then. Would you care for some of this Tarkalian tea? It's very good. 
Do what? A thoughtful young man. How nice that we've met. <clears throat> you know, some people say that you remained on DS9 as the eyes and ears of your fellow Cardassians. You don't say. Doctor, you're not intimating that I'm some sort of spy, are you? I wouldn't know, sir. Ah, an open mind, the essence of intellect. As you may also know, I have a clothing shop nearby, so if you should require any apparel or simply wish, as I do, for a bit of enjoyable company now and then, I'm at your disposal, Doctor. You're very kind, Mr. Garrick. Oh, it's just Garrick. Plain, simple, Garrick. Uh, Garrick was a Cardassian tailor on Deep Space Nine, and uh, he was apparently a holdover from Terok Noor. He began a friendship with Dr. Bashir, um, and over time, we realized, and it was not a long time, but we realized fairly quickly that uh, that Garrick had some connection to the Cardassian intelligence apparatus, but that he was, in fact, in exile. Uh, there's a brilliant episode in the second season called The Wire, uh, where we learn that Garrick has basically, he had an implant in his head because he worked for Cardassian intelligence, the Obsidian Order, and an implant in his head that was supposed to stimulate his pleasure centers so that he could withstand torture. And we learn that living among humans and living among the Federation on Deep Space Nine is so torturous to him that he has essentially burned out the machine that's in his head and he is losing it. Uh, and Dr. B- Dr. Bashir has to save his life. And Andy Robinson gives just this feral performance as Garrick where he finally loses it and he finally tells Bashir exactly what he thinks about humanity. But the coolest part is he he asks Bashir, would you like to know how I got these scars? Uh, he like He invents telling three different stories about his origin, you know, like, did he like, you know, kill like a bunch of refugees? Did he accidentally kill the child of a Cardassian military commander? Like, what did he do? It's never actually explicitly answered by the show what Garrick did uh, to be exiled uh, from from Cardassia. We do know why he wasn't just executed outright. It's because we learned that his father as a very important Cardassian named Inabrin Tane, uh, who we later see again, who is just a, a fascinating, fascinating character. Um, but what Garrick does is Garrick represents, he represents the dark side that, and I don't mean that in capital D, capital S, but he represents the dark side that the, the, the Deep Space Nine characters always have to flirt with. As Cisco says at one point, it's easy to be a saint in paradise. Mm-hmm. And Garrick is playing the role of Satan. Like, and I don't mean that in the sense of he's like, he's the devil and he's evil. I mean, he is, he is Satan in the sense that he is a teacher who is saying, here are your options and here are the things that you can do. And these are perfectly rational things that not only can you do them, but you should be doing them. But these are the costs. Uh, and you know, and I don't want to, jump ahead of anything but but i will say that that garrick consistently offers uh our heroes uh, very difficult conundrums whether it is an invasion of dominion space 
to kill all the founders at once in a decapitation attack to end the Dominion War before it begins, or perhaps participates in an effort to ensure that the Romulan Empire joins the war on the side of the Federation um, at a very, very low cost that I, I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point. Um, you know, Garrick is just, he, whenever he is on screen, you love him, even in smaller roles like an Arman Bashir. When he's a real spy who is hanging out with Dr. Bashir, pretending to be a spy and having fun being James Bond, he's just, he's a, he's a great character. He's so well played. He's so well written. Um, you can't really have a meaningful conversation about Deep Space Nine without talking about Garrick. He is basically a regular who's not in the main titles. Yeah, but it's what I said earlier. It's an actor who was given this one role in the second episode, was a one-off, and he was so brilliant in it that they're like, we got to keep writing for him. And it ends up being not only a character that is there for all seven years, but he elevates, he brings out the best in the other characters. He brings out the best in Bashir. He brings out the best in Cisco. I mean, he elevates the other characters. I mean, and Andrew Robinson is so great. Because you never know if he's telling truth. He's kind of like the Joker in the in, in the Dark Knight when he says, "You know how I got these scars?" It's like you know, it's like you don't know whether or not to believe him. in every story, and it's just he's he's so great. And it's like they can make a slow horses show just about him. Oh about my god, him. yes, <laughs> you know, I love that. Cardassian, who put, isn't it great? Who put him out to uh, to pasture because uh, you know he can't be with MI six anymore. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I, I know slow horses is great. And the second season was even better than the first. Um, so anyway, Garrick, what a great character and the great Andy Robinson, uh, again, another part of that staple, that, that deep bench of sluggers that deep space nine put together. That's just so wonderful and, uh, and a great character and, uh, part of what made the show so special. Okay. Speaking of somebody who made shows special, Robert Meyer Burnett, we're back on the bridge of the, 1701, no bloody A, B, C, or D, with one of the most iconic Star Trek characters of all time coming in number 18. Tell us who it is. Uh, you know, I don't know if I should admit this, but I'm going to admit it. My first celebrity crush was this person. And uh, the limitless beauty was only matched by her intelligence and capability of doing her job well, even under fire. And that is, of course, Lieutenant Uhura, played by the great Michelle Nichols. Roger, Old City Station at 2200 hours. All is well. Understood. All stations clear. You amaze me, Commander. Oh, how is that? A 20-year space veteran, yet you choose the worst duty station in town. I mean, look at this place. This is the hind end of space. Peace and quiet appeals to me, Lieutenant. Yeah, well, maybe that's okay for someone like you, whose career is winding down. But me... I need some challenge in my life, some adventure, maybe even just a surprise or two. Well, you know what they say, Lieutenant. Be careful what you wish for. You may get it. Good evening, Commander. Is everything ready? Step into my parlor, gentlemen. That's Admiral Kirk, my God. Very good for you, Lieutenant. But it's damn irregular. No destination orders, no encoded IDs. All true. Well, what are we going to do about it? I'm not going to do anything about it. You're going to sit in the closet. The closet? What, have you lost all your sense of reality? This isn't reality. This is fantasy. You wanted adventure? How's this? The old adrenaline going? Huh? Good boy. Now get in the closet. Okay. Uh, Go uh, on. 
Go on. I'll just get in the closet. Okay. I'm glad you're on our side. Can you handle that? Uh... Oh, I'll have Mr. Adventure eating out of my hands, sir. And I'll see all of you at the rendezvous. Oh, and Admiral. All my hopes. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, I didn't, I mean, to me, she was just one of the most beautiful creatures I'd ever seen. I didn't see her as, she was just a hura. The thing I noticed most about her were her giant green hoop earrings, which I really loved. And the transmitting uh, device she had in her ear all the time. And she has one of my uh, favorite moments with Kirk when she tells Kirk that she's frightened. I'm frightened. And Kirk's like, you're the only one that can do it. You know, and, and one of my favorite sequences in all of Star Trek is in Mirror Mirror. When a frightened Uhura goes up on the bridge wearing arguably one of the sexiest outfits I'd ever seen in my young life. When her <laughs> midriff was exposed, I was like, oh my God, I don't know why, but I just, that is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. But when she goes head to head with Mirror Sulu, who yeah. was a very dangerous man and plays I mean, it it was one of my fa- it's one of my favorite moments in in TOS when she's on the bridge of the mirror, the ISS Enterprise, and she has to distract Sulu from looking at his security board so our our stalwart heroes can get back to their own universe. Yeah, it shows what an incredible actress Nichelle Nichols really is. I mean, she can be coy and inviting. You have to you you have you didn't come back, you know, and and. Uh, she really had a lot of range and the show never really gave her that much to do. And I think it, the most she ever had to do was in that sequence. But, you know, to see, I understand what it meant. Everybody's talked about this throughout history, about how much it meant to have a black woman on the command deck of the Starship Enterprise in 1966 America. It was a huge deal. I wasn't so aware of that when I was a kid. To me, she was just Lieutenant Uhura. She was part of the bridge crew. I didn't even understand about the difference between race. I just knew that she was a badass. And that's that's how I how I grew up. And, you know, one of the great things I think about the show is she did get moments to shine sometimes in the movies. But I always wish that she was given more to do because... You know, that scene in Star Trek Three when Mr. Adventure, you know, you're going to get in the closet. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, she she had great comedic timing. Mm-hmm. And, and you she, were going to get in the closet. Yeah, she really had a, a sparkle and an effervescence to her. And I, I really thought, and you know, there were times when I love when she would get under her console to fix something. And yeah. Spock's like, uh, you need a hand here? And she's like, no. I don't. I've got it. You know, I I, I love that, and I yeah, love. I wouldn't tap the button and let the Romulans know we're here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Look, my my favorite moment of hers is a really throwaway thing in uh, uh, in the episode where Sulu is uh, running around with the uh, rapier sword, naked time, naked time, naked time. Yeah. and he he comes on the bridge and he grabs her and he says, "Ah, fair maiden," and she says. Sorry, neither. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant <laughs> line, and it's just sort of thrown away. But I love it. Yeah, can I just say? I mean, there was a lot of talk when Michelle passed about, oh, you know, she she got nothing to do. She was all she said was hailing frequency open. That's again, that's Star Trek revisionism. Yeah, that's not is. true. She actually, you know, if you look at look, she Games of Triskelion, not a great episode. She has a lot to do in that. There are a couple of yes. episodes 
where she's heavily featured. And more importantly, yes, she never got the con, but there are plenty of times where someone was disabled at navigation or at the con where she would rush up and take, you know, I think in that which survives. Um, there are a couple of times. So like she had a lot of responsibility. So the and, message and she I sent, flirted with Mr. Spock. You know, yes, all, she all did. that sort of, uh, you know, relationship between them and the in the J.J. movies, that's that's set forward in the original show. Because I don't know that she appreciably had less than Sulu or Chekhov. No, my God. Or no. any, you know, she had more to do than Leslie and a lot, you know, so it's like, given the fact that this was a star vehicle, we talked about this before, it's the big three, Kirk, Spock and McCoy. She had a fair amount of of of, of, of screen time, all things considered. And she is... You know, and, and and she's riveting. You know, you're absolutely, you love that character. You want to see more, which is what you want out of a character. Yep. But there's this fallacy that all she did was sit in the chair and touch the Bluetooth and say, hailing frequencies open, which is, which is, you know, not great. And then, oh my God, I was watching Journey to Babel recently on Pluto. And there's that scene where Kirk yells at her, you know, you got it on a narrow, you know, on a wide beam and they're transmitting from inside the ship. And he yells at her and I'm thinking, oh my God, the millennials are going to hate this. You keep yelling and yelling at the crew. They would never have that on the new Star Trek. And they would never have that. Oh, these kids are going to be so offended. How dare Captain Kirk yell at somebody for fucking up? It's like, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't matter the fact that the ship is about to get destroyed and they're being hunted and all this stuff yeah. is going on and he loses his temper. Oh no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, and it, but, but she's a professional. Yeah. And she takes it in stride and she fixes the problem and it's, everything's fine. She doesn't take it personal. She doesn't sit there and mope, go to her quarters. Captain Kirk yelled at me. Also, you know, there's a moment that was when I again when I was a kid, when Nomad, when the the episode The Changeling, mm -hmm. Nomad wipes her memory. Yeah. And they have to re-educate her. I was like, that's for my young self, that was like the most horrifying thing. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh my God, she how that's terrible. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's kind of a shame how they treat her re-education scene. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A, a little uh, farcical. Yeah, uh, but you know, well, at that's least, at least we're learning that she's uh, you know back up to a grade school level. But you know, she also, um, we, you know, she has a lot more character development. Than a lot of the other characters, we know she loves music. Yeah. She gets to play music. I mean, which is a wonderful thing. It's kind of like where they learn, you know, Riker, uh, 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 Frakes like Trump, you know, jazz music. I mean, you know, she was a singer and a dancer. Yeah. And they gave her, you know, a lot of singing to do, which was kind of cool when she sings in Charlie X and, and stuff like that. So I think it's, it's it's wrong to say that, you know, she was given this diminished role. She, you know, she had a supporting role. And yeah. boy, she just. She was the top of the supporting players. She, she She's just magnificent at it. Yeah. She's really great. She looks great. She gives a great performance. And, and you know, for a bunch of us, it's hard to appreciate um, because we just saw it, like you said, Rob, as part of the bridge crew, a valued member of the bridge crew, an important part. But to be someone who has been discriminated against, to be somebody who hasn't seen people that look like them, to see somebody like Ohura on the screen for the first time. And we've heard these stories, apocryphal or not, from Gene Roddenberry about how they were getting, you know, hate letters from the South. You know, I hate seeing a black woman on TV, but if it has to be, then I'm glad it's Nichelle because she's gorgeous, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, and it's like, so, but, to to be you know a, a young African American growing up and to see you know a, a character like this on television in 1966, 1967, 1968, it must have been a remarkable thing. We can't oh, even no. Uh, I mean, right? We're we're not very far from the Jim Crow South. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg tells the story too a lot of how she saw 
Uhura on the bridge and she said, great, there's black people in the future. Mm -hmm. You know, and it gave her that perspective. In, in and, command and capable and confident right. in, in STEM. And, I mean, and and when you... She was in line to, if, if, if she was in the line of succession to captain the ship. Yeah. If people were, I mean, that's how capable she was. She was communications officer, but she was in, she was command. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she did command it in the animated series. And, yeah, sure. right. and even look at that great scene in the Man Trap. We've talked about this, in the right. turbo lift where she meets this, you know, do I know you, sir? You know, and and, and it's the, the salt monster in disguise as this mysterious, swarthy stranger. Yeah, but she's great. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> that's the thing about her. You know, there, I will say there's some other supporting actors that had certain scenes that maybe they weren't great at. She was never not good. Yeah, right. Michelle was never not good. You know, and, and then, you know, if you follow her career after that and watch her in Truck Turner in the mid-70s, I mean, oh my God, it's like, that's the real mirror of her. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, she, but she's awesome in that movie. Oh my God, she's amazing. And I, it's People too bad that, that she didn't get more, you know, more roles where she could break out of, of that. She could have been Pam role. Greer. Yeah, she mm -hmm. really could have. But Truck Turner, man, she's awesome in that. She's so good in that movie. I mean, you know, I mean, it's a total black exploitation movie, but man, she's, her and Yafet Kodo. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just so great in that. You know, it's obviously we're 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 talking mainly about Nichelle here, but it should be noted that when Aura comes back, she's also played by Zoe Saldana, who is like I think ridiculously underused in Avatar too, uh, and also Celia Rose Gooding in uh, Strange New Worlds, who's I think quite good. Um, but it's more I think a testament to um, how uh, how important. And how effective Uhura was as a character, because it's not a gimme that all those original series characters are on the bridge of the Enterprise in Strange New Worlds. Uhura is. Um, now, who knows? Eventually, maybe they all will be. But, but at the beginning, like we have Uhura, and I think there's a reason for that. And I think it's it's because you know she did more than just say hailing frequencies. It's because of all the things that we're talking about. It's because of uh, the impression that Nichelle made on on everybody. You know, it's it's a there's a there's a reason why we talk about Ahura and we don't talk about Mr. Kyle. But also, it's an important thing to know when the hailing frequencies are open too. It totally is. So you're not saying you're shit you don't want people to can't hear. hear you. So, like, Ahura, why did you open the hailing frequencies <laughs> and not tell me when I was talking crap about the Romulan commander? I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, uh, agree with my esteemed colleague Darren Dockerman though. There is one time that Ahura was done dirty. And that was in Star Trek Six. Yep. 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 I, I agree. Hate that she's surrounded the by book these scene. books, not knowing. Like, I hate that. And one of the things that they uh, fixed in Strange New Worlds was they made her, you know, a philologist. She's a great linguist, and uh, I think that that was something I always thought she was that way. Of course. And I really thought that was a huge misstep. They went for the comic, the joke, the cheap joke. Rather than the fact that Ahura, of course, would be brilliantly well versed in a multitude of languages, yeah, and 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 it would have been so so much better for her character and for that scene. Than the if she'd just been spouting off the Klingon, it's like somebody is bringing in the book to figure it out. She's like, no, yeah. no, no, and yeah. then she just starts that, blah 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 and Klingon, and everybody. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. that's the way. See, that's the Star Trek way. And yeah. whenever, whenever I know when people understand how to write Star Trek, because. Star Trek never 
uh, humor should never come at the, at the expense of our characters. Right, right. Our characters are never denigrated in that way. Yeah. And when they are, then somebody's missing. And not to disparage Nicholas Meyer, but it shows it shows me that these people don't under, understand how a Trek character should be written. Well, and I think I, I have a feeling maybe had Harv been there, he would have said he would have said no, you know, to that. He would have flagged that. I just I just <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's funny, you guys mentioned Strange New Worlds and, and not to get deep in the weeds on that. But I do have a problem is I felt that the arc was very much the Hoshi arc on Enterprise. Mm. And I didn't like the idea that. Um, Ohura didn't want to be in space and didn't want this command. And oh, I hated that. Very green. And, you know, I, I think yeah, there's nothing like less than characters who don't want to be in the yeah. story. Oh, and we've seen in. that, you know, it's like we want to see her be extremely competent. It's the same thing we said about Star Trek Six. We want her to be competent and capable and knowledgeable. And, um, and it, it sends a very important message. And they give her a traumatic backstory. Yeah. You know, her parents. And, and the thing is, why? Well, because you know, Star Trek's about tra trauma. trauma. Well, they've made it that way, and uh -huh. and that's one of the things I think you know, not to harp on modern Star Trek, but the idea is that these are aspirational characters, you know, and 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 the thing is, they have these opportunities. They want to embrace these opportunities. They're yeah. not running away. Yeah. When you get to go onto a Federation starship on the edge of the final frontier, this is a blessing. This is a an amazing opportunity. And the you only reason that these characters would be upset is if they're not getting enough experience to do things. That's right. Star Trek is always, again, we talked about meritocracy, honoring competence, yeah. and, and idealism. And, and, and that this is the key, the heart of Star Trek. Okay, speaking of the heart of Star Trek, that brings us to number 17, and a character that has resonated now for almost 60 years, not quite yeah. 60 years, but well, uh, it's so interesting. Year it will be. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, the original pilot, the cage, of course, as we all know, uh, featured the adventures of the Starship Enterprise under the command of Captain Christopher Pike. What's been on your mind, Chris? The fight on Rigel 7? Shouldn't it be? My own yeoman and two others dead, seven injured. Was there anything you personally could have done to prevent it? Oh, I should have smelled trouble when I saw the swords and the armor. Instead of that, I let myself get trapped in that deserted fortress and attacked by one of their warriors. Well, Chris, you set standards for yourself no one could meet. You treat everyone on board like a human being except yourself. Well, now you're tired and you... You bet I'm tired. You bet. I'm tired of being responsible for 203 lives and... I'm tired of deciding which mission is too risky and which isn't, and who's going on the landing party and who doesn't, and who lives, and who dies. Oh, I've, I've had it, Phil. To the point of finally taking my advice, arrest, leave. To the point of considering resigning. And do what? Well, for one thing, go home. Nice little town with 50 miles of parkland around it. Remember I told you I had two horses? We used to take some food and ride out all day. Well, that sounds exciting. You ride out with a picnic lunch every day. I said that's one place I might go. Well, I might go into business on regulars or in the Orion colony. You, an Orion trader, dealing in green animal women slaves? But the point is that this isn't the only life available. It's a whole galaxy of things to choose from. Not for you. 
A man either lives life as it happens to him, meets it head on and licks it, or he turns his back on it and starts to wither away. Now you're beginning to talk like a doctor, bartender. You take your choice. We both get the same two kinds of customers, the living and the dying. Played by the late Jeffrey Hunter, um, who was a movie star. He was a big wig in Hollywood at the time, and uh, this was a real catch for the uh, producers of Star Trek. Um, and he played the, uh, you know, the dashing captain of the Enterprise, and uh, a different uh, personality, of course, than Captain Kirk. He was a little more internal with his strife and his uh, struggles. And, uh, you know, we, we learn all about it in a, a great scene between him and uh, Dr. Boyce, who we talked about earlier. Um, but, uh, uh, Captain Pike, as we meet him in the, uh, in the cage is uh, very much, uh, well, he is traumatized because of his, uh, his last, uh, uh command mission, um, uh, to, uh, Rigel, uh, where it was, uh, a, uh, a trap and uh, a lot of, it's his- a trap. A lot of his crew were uh, hurt and some were killed and uh, and it was his fault. And, you know, sometimes uh, being human has uh, faults and you have to deal with the uh, consequences of your actions and your command. And, the loneliness uh, of command. That's correct. Well, what's really interesting, Wrong. Darren, what you just pointed out is that of all Star Trek characters, Pike did suffer from trauma. Yeah, and and I think modern Star Trek. One of the reasons they keep bringing the character Pike seems to be such a whether it was J.J. Abrams bringing him back. Of course, Anson Mount is playing Pike now. They keep going back to Pike, and I've often wondered: is it because of that? You know, they just certainly played off that that he wanted to get out of the service in strange new worlds, and yeah, you know, and I, I've always thought that was such an. I mean, is that because television writers today find that to be an easier jumping off point? than finding somebody that's gung-ho and that wants to go out and do something? Well, it's like- because they only have to watch one episode. <laughs> well, uh, there's also this. I, I think, um, at least in the case, I'll say at least in the case of Strange New Worlds, right? And especially, specifically when you're talking about Pike, you have to remember that, you know, the the second season of Discovery, um, you know, Anson came in. And he made just an, an incredibly positive impression, even on people um, who didn't really like Discovery, uh, that he seemed to capture something that felt like Star Trek. When we had him uh, on this show and we were talking to him, one of the things we talked about was how um, it felt like his Pike, as much as we were sort of like, well, you know, he has the trauma, it's whatever, but like, but, but his Pike seemed to embody the optimism of Star Trek, you know, that well, he had a joy to vivre. He had a joy to vivre to the character. It's like exactly. the compa- it's it's like the comparison to the other characters. It's like uh, it's from uh, you know Monty Python and the Holy Grail. How do you know he's the king? Well, he hasn't got shit all over him. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's, it's, it's uh, you know the, finally an adventurous lead actor. Uh, and I'm not talking about the sexism or anything, but this is this is a, a lead actor who not only wants to be there, is qualified to be there, and people want to follow him. Yes, right. You know? I just wish they had surrounded him with a supporting cast. I mean, the, the actors are really, really good. On so I think I really yeah, do it's like the, the characters actors. that are that are screwed up. Yeah, it's the characters and the way they're written. I mean, I I would like to have people that are as competent and as 
gung-ho. I mean, the thing about Star Trek is the people on the bridge are the best of the best. They're the yeah. top, they're the 99th percentile of people. And that's part of the appeal of it is that these are the most competent people in the world. They don't they don't screw up. They're the tops. They're the tops. I mean, they really are. And and uh, Anson Mount, and you know, he's it's uh, it's it's kind of a strange dynamic that he has with the crew because you know, he he makes dinner for everybody. I mean, the principal cast, it doesn't matter what their rank is. He's not surrounded by a group of friends that are his command staff, which is odd. Well, I liked that Jeff Hunter had a reserve to him and that yeah. he kept everyone at a distance. Yes. I always found it very interesting that Ira Bear, whenever you talk to him about Deep Space Nine, he said he was a much bigger fan of Jeffrey Hunter than Chatner. Now, obviously, we wouldn't agree with that, but it was so interesting that he found Pike such a more interesting character, partially because... He said he grew up with Jeffrey Hunter as a movie star in The right. Searchers and in King of Kings and all that stuff. Great story I ever told. But um, it, it, it's interesting because Pike was such a unique character. And you kind of understood why Gene changed Pike to Kirk, you know, whereas Kirk had this zestfulness for exploration and being out there and, you know, embracing uh, the life. galaxy for life. And just, you know, the same way Shatner does, because, of course, yeah. Shatner brought so much of himself to the role, um, whereas Hunter was much more sedate and muted. And it was interesting, but it's something that we saw when we were, it, isn't it, Darren, that when we were at the um, uh, Skirball Center and right. they showed the cage showed on the, the big cage. screen and it, it, Jeffrey Hunter's performance came to life yeah. because he gave the performance of a film he's giving a, He's giving a movie performance. As yeah. opposed to a TV performance. Yep. And... Um, you know, where Shatner had only done theater and TV, and he gave, and this is not to, in any way to diminish no. what he did, it, it is remarkable, but he gave a TV performance, whereas Jeffrey Hunter was giving a film performance. And um, I don't know if that would have worked. I mean, we've talked about this before. Had Jeffrey Hunter stayed with the show, would the show have endured? I don't know if it would have. Well, the, um, the dynamic between he and uh, and Spock uh, would not have given us the Spock that everyone came no. to love. No, uh, and it, it's the the whole uh, arrival of uh, Shatner and Kirk uh, that uh, keyed Leonard into going the opposite way. You know, well, uh, that opening scene in Where No Man Has Gone Before, where they're playing chess. Yeah, you know, and the relationship they have, they're they're clearly friends. You know, they clearly admire each other, and 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 Kirk knows something about Vulcans, and he's playing off of his. First officer, and and there is a playfulness there between the yeah. two of them that I don't think Jeffrey Hunter would have been capable. I mean, no, he would have been and, capable. And, and, that's not where his performance was going. Right. Whether going. or not he was capable, he wasn't making that decision to do that. But I think the reason Jeffrey Hunter is so high on our list is because it is a very interesting performance as Pike. Yeah. This guy who is very internal, who's questioning his choices in life, who's suffering from the death of his crew, and then... You sort of rediscovers his zest for life, you know, by being and imprisoned in arguably his faces, faces a bigger threat to himself than Kirk ever did. You know, uh, I mean, this was a, a direct threat to Pike's existence and to the uh, uh, continued existence of the Enterprise. Um, and the way he dealt one on one with the threat of the Talosians uh, was really clever and, and, uh, you know, dare I say, action oriented in a in a you know a refined way. Um, it's uh, it's such an interesting, different take on that of a uh, captain. And, uh, and his I, I relationship with Vina 
and totally. then his sensitivity to Vina yeah, to yes. what happened to her and how you know he it's important to him that she has a quote unquote happy ending in a way after what she suffered. Right. I, I also think that the way the fact that I didn't know that there was a cage when I was first watching Star Trek as a kid, it was an absolute revelation to see the menagerie parts one and two for the yeah. first time because in one of the great uh decisions in the history of television to use that unaired pilot to use the rejected pilot and to establish a history and a lineage not just for the enterprise but for yeah. kirk and to have to show us uh the, the, 13 the years captain previously. yeah the captain mm -hmm. that's that preceded kirk and to show us this was it, it was mind-blowing and canon was born in that yeah. moment Yep, and it was it. It cannot be understated how important that two part episode was to the birth of Star Trek fandom. Yep, because it really hit home that mm -hmm. oh, we're watching just a sliver. You know, the, the there's all these things happening in this universe, all these stories that we're not privy to, but they're there and they've informed everything, and we never knew. What that could be to see Spock and that that was it was mind blowing the first time I saw that episode, and when I was a kid I couldn't wait to see the Menagerie one and two rebroadcast because I loved Pike, I love Boyce, I love Number One, I love that entire crew of that Enterprise. I thought they were fantastic, and I'm like, wow, the Enterprise had a worthy crew on it, different mm -hmm. crew, but a worthy crew before Kirk and company, and that was. I think for Star Trek fandom and people that love Star Trek, that was a key moment. The menagerie cannot be understated how important the, that two-parter was to the to the entirety of Star Trek itself. Well, it's funny that, that that sense of distant mountains, right? That you know, that Tolkien-esque idea that there's like that place that you're not even going, but that, that it exists and that it's important that things are happening there. You just don't know what all of it is, but you're aware that it's there. Or, you know, George Lucas... Uh, talking about, you know, the world outside the frame, right? Like yes. that there are things that we see that imply a world outside the frame that we're not seeing. And I think you're right that the menagerie and, and meeting Captain Pike was the kind of thing that implied a world outside the frame. And that was incredibly exciting. Well, and I think Star, Star Trek did that very, very well. You know, the world outside the frame was a, because you're always going places and there were people when Kirk in trouble with troubles. Ah, my dear Captain Koloff, we never saw them meet, but they had met. Yeah. And so you, you realize the world outside the frames. Oh, I always wanted to see, well, how did they first meet? and Why were they? They were so funny with each other. What's that story? But we never were going to know. Well, it's funny because I uh, I called Darren. I don't know if I was high on pain medication or what, but I was from COVID. I was watching Pluto and I said, Darren, I just had epiphany. And he's like, oh, what do you want, Mark? And I'm like, listen, here's the thing. So I'm watching Cormite Maneuver or, um, or, 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 or The Man Trap or something. I said, do you realize in the closing credits, they're showing clips from episodes that haven't aired yet. So like you're watching the menagerie and it hasn't even happened yet could you imagine in 1966 watching this show for the first time and then and you're watching the end credits and you're seeing this green orion slave girl and like baylock and all this stuff that hasn't even happened yet it must have blown people's minds and he's like yeah you should go back to bed 
<laughs> I wasn't exactly that cold. I with you. Uh, no, you did. You agree with me. You're like, yeah, that must have been pretty amazing to see all these these stills from episodes that haven't yet aired. I mean, that must have been extraordinary. So uh, it, it was it was pretty cool. But but there is something about Captain Pike. Obviously, as you said, he keeps coming back. You know, first it was, and who would have thought? You know, I mean, the menagerie was uh, was a miracle. I mean, that's Gene Roddenberry's, you know, crowning achievement in a way that he took this pilot and turned it into a two part. It was just utter genius. genius. And, genius. and then and then to have him come back in the JJ movies and played by Bruce Bruce Greenwood very well, yeah. and yeah. then to bring him back and base a whole. You know, of course, Marvel Comics brought him back in the early voyages um, as well, and, which was and, actually very good. Which is very good. We're going to have the writer uh, for that uh, coming on the show soon, and then um, you'll have to join us, Rob. And then um, we have to, you know, and then to have Anson Mount, who uh, is so good, you know, regardless of whatever issues we might have with the writing or the way the character present, but what a powerhouse performance that Anson Mount gave not only in Discovery, where he brought you know life to lifelessness, but um, then to have uh, him uh, you know anchor uh, the strange new worlds. It's 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 it's, it's really a testament to the durability of this this character. And it, it's almost hard, we, we've talked about it now for quite a while, to pinpoint what it is about Christopher Pike that makes him so enduring. I think what makes him so enduring is that he is unexplored. He truly is unexplored. And we've only had a, a, a tiny bit of who he was, certainly from TOS uh, and, and uh, later. But uh, that his... His uh, 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 possibilities are so vast because they haven't been explored yet. Well, and also he was captain of the Enterprise for a very long time yeah. compared to Kirk. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, eleven years, and mm -hmm. Spock. Well, Spock served under him for eleven years uh, plus, and and that's to think that there was somebody. It's like you know, you you meet a woman and fall in love, and you have to explain to her you were married before, and you were married for. 15 years or something and that woman wants to know all about your but it does give you a sense of why spock was willing to sacrifice everything in the menagerie exactly to bring his um uh, you know pike to talus and that's Four. also I mean, what's so great about the menagerie is that because we we already know who spock is and his value as a character and his uh his quality um that when he gives up all of it for this Pike, we got to think, oh my God, Pike must yeah. have been an amazing person. And that's yeah. also part of the draw to that character. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the greatest love affairs on Star Trek are Kirk and the Enterprise uh -huh. and Spock and Pike in yeah. a way, you yeah. know? So it's, it's pretty remarkable. And, and this is- And Scotty and Mirror remain. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on, do the, do, 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 do the voice. There you go. I got to tell you, I have not watched um, The Lights of Zatar. I have not probably not watched it in 20 years, that episode. Yeah. But I watched it on Pluto TV when I was down with COVID. Yeah. And let me tell you, it gets no better. It gets no it's better, not, but it's still fun. I, I don't know about that. It's fun. It's, it's interesting. Dumb, but it's fun. I, look, I love the idea of memory alpha. Yeah. When, the idea when, of it. That was a really I interesting addition to canon, Star Trek canon. When a What's man of Scotty's years. What's all this talk about dying? Well, her takes the con, I think, in that one. I believe she I, does. Not, not, you know, not the con, but, you know, like the navigation. You know, well, that's, like, yeah, same yeah. thing. Yeah. She, she has cool stuff to do on that. <laughs> Anything would be cool. Anything happening in that episode would be good. Uh, other than creepy people talking in weird voices. Well, 
Oh my god! But yeah, Memory Alpha is great, but they don't do anything except show a bunch of dead people on it. Right, I know. Yeah, the planetoid. <laughs> yeah, everything's erased by the. You know, there's no. It's all gone now. It's not in the cloud. It's they have backups. I don't yeah. know. Well, Back it up to the cloud. Speaking of backing up, well, listen, we're we're at number seventeen, but we're not done yet. You're not rid of us yet because next week we're back with part eight of our holiday countdown. We'll be resuming part eight of our two part episode. We'll be resuming it uh, with number sixteen, and we're getting really close to number one. Are your favorite characters going to make the cut? Well, the only way to find out is probably to keep not. Listening. Actually, as it goes. <laughs> Well, it's not true because uh, I think we're about to see not only some beloved characters, but some surprises about to join our countdown. This is true. And uh, the only way to, to, to do that is to, to keep listening. Every Friday here on the Trexperts, we want to thank uh, Miguel Rivera. continues to make us sound so good. So glad to have him back uh, with the show. Thanks to our Trexperts Plus subscribers. We're able to bring Miguel Rivera back. And, of course, Peter Holmstrom for our uh, producer for pulling all the great clips that you've been listening to and getting that all all stuff. Pull so the clips. Pull the clips. The clips. Of course, you want to join the uh, the conversation um, uh, uh, on social. You can go to us on Twitter at Glorious Trek or Glorious Trexperts on Facebook and um, the other thing, <laughs> Instagram, and uh, and of course, if uh, if you want to hear uh, Rob Burnett hold court on uh, Star Trek and much more in his observatory, you can follow him on the Burnett Work at YouTube. And yeah. also, we encourage you to uh, the returning uh, Trexperts Briefing Room, an entirely different podcast, will be making its return as well. So a lot of good Trexperts goodness going on, and uh, we're excited for you to take these uh, many such journeys as possible. And uh, we hope you will uh, will join us. So uh, I want to thank, uh, first of all, wish everybody a very, very happy new year, even if it is July. And um, <laughs> thank uh, Robert Meyer Burnett, Ash Miller, Darren Dockerman, and myself, Mark and Altman. Uh, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you to our audience uh, for joining us once again on this incredible fifth annual holiday countdown. And we hope you keep on trekking and gloriously, of course, until next week. Shh. Engage. 